0: All right. You're going to need a Bible tonight. So take a Bible out. You're going to need some notes to kind of follow along. They're up here on this podium if you need some. There's some in the very back if you need some back there. I don't have quite as many blanks for you to fill out tonight. We're just going to look at some verses in the first part of the study, and you can jot down some things that we talk about or things that stand out to you, Uh, but then we'll we'll get to a few fill-in-the-blanks for those of you who like filling in the blanks. I guess I feel like I owe you a little bit of a disclaimer before this lesson, just to say... Of all the things we're going to talk about on Wednesday nights in this series, this is probably the most simple and the most basic and the most fundamental and the easiest. Um, You know, we spent, we had one week of introduction. We just sort of laid the groundwork of what is the truth. And it's something that we need to know with our minds, it's something we need to believe with our hearts. It's something we need to share with our mouths, and it's something that you wrap all of that together and we're ready to defend it. We're ready to 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 fight for it, to argue for it, to stand up for it. And so that was kind of week one. And then we talked about the gospel. What is the gospel message? It's a message that God is holy and that we are sinners and that Jesus is the answer to that problem and that we're called to repent and believe and give our lives to follow Jesus. That was week two, and just easy, simple phrases to memorize, to sort of store away in your brain so that you have categories for gospel truths that you need to share with people when you're talking to them. God is holy. We are sinners. Jesus is the answer. Repent and believe. Follow Jesus. Very simple, very easy. And then we talked about conversion because we said the goal in all of this is that we see people converted. We see them actually move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from following the prince of the power of the air, uh, the God of this world, to following Jesus Christ. And so we talked about what does real conversion look like? Because we, we need a target that we're shooting for. When we're sharing the gospel message with people, what do we actually want to happen in their life? And we sort of summed that up with, uh, after saying there is certainly false conversions not genuine conversions. The Bible talks about those. We summed it up and said genuine conversion is comprehension, an understanding of the gospel message. It's conviction, conviction of sin, not just being able to give a definition of sin, but feeling convicted about sin, not just being able to define who Jesus is, but saying he's supremely valuable to me, so feeling a conviction. Uh, we talked about making a commitment it's more than just feelings but it's being proactive and saying I'm going to make a commitment to be a follower of Jesus and Jesus talks about counting the cost when you make that commitment you need to know what you're getting into up front and then the fourth C there was four C's comprehension, conviction, commitment the fourth one is church that genuine conversion looks like finding your place in the body of Christ and, uh, and seeing how you fit in there so we talked about that We spent one week talking about discipleship, and I tried to explain to you that you can't separate evangelism from discipleship, right? Those two things go together, and when you separate them, they become different things entirely that they were never meant to be. They have to go together uh, for both of them to, to be what they are. Last week was practical. We talked about asking questions. How do you ask questions of people? How do you sort of engage them in conversation? And sort of the big theme was we don't want to talk to people, we don't want to talk at people, but we want to talk with people. We want to have a a genuine, healthy interaction with folks. And tonight, you see the heading there is using your Bible. Um, Obviously, when you share the gospel with somebody, the Bible needs to have some role in that, right? And the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight, you're going to get to the end of it and you're going to say... Well, that was really simple. That was really basic stuff. We pay this guy to do that, to stand up there and to say that stuff. Are you kidding me? And I need to be reminded of these things, and I'll tell you why. I have a tendency, when I start to think about evangelism and missions and sharing our faith and all that stuff, I have a tendency to overcomplicate it, okay, okay? The good side of that is you can think analytically and you can dive in and you can study different aspects of it and you can improve and you can critique yourself and grow all good things to do, which is what we're doing in this study. But this is one. I hope it's very practical for you. And I hope that maybe this lesson takes some of the pressure off and frees you up when you think about sharing your faith with other people where it's not something that you're worried about. It's not something where you say, you know... He gave us all the lessons, but I just don't know if I can do all that, and I might mess it up. So, if I'm going to mess it up, I'm not even going to do it in the first place. This lesson just sort of is saying wait a minute, what we're talking about when we talk about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with other people is not complicated, it's not difficult. Any one of you in here can do that, and uh, sometimes we just miss the obvious. And we overcomplicate things. So we're going to look at these scriptures. You can get ready to look those up. But I want to tell you a couple of stories that illustrate what I'm trying to get at. Okay, A couple of stories that just maybe remind you of the power and the importance of God's word changing people's lives. Okay. When Brooke and I lived in Kentucky, when I was a seminary student, we'd been there about a year and a half, and I had a couple of family members that came and visited us, that came and stayed. And one of the family members that came out there to visit us was not a believer, okay? Uh, raised, going to church, uh, Christmas and Easter only, you know, holidays, big events, did not go to church regularly, did not know the Bible, um, just sort of in his brain had a, a cultural idea of Christianity, a caricature of what Christianity was really like. So they came to visit, and one night while they were there, and this guy was, was there in my house, uh, we got to talking about sort of the, uh, theological issues, uh, really even philosophical issues, and I'll be the first to tell you that this guy who came to visit me, he's way smarter than me. I mean, he's a genius. He's intellectually on a completely different planet than I am but we're talking and we're talking about theology and he's asking questions and I'm doing my best to answer and he's raising all these philosophical objections and I'm trying to answer and we go round and round and sort of at the end of the night he says I, I was shocked he says I "Man, that all makes sense to me I like it <laughs> really like I convinced you wow that's amazing answered all his questions felt so good about myself and um, he went home, did not change his life one bit. Is most certainly not a follower of Jesus Christ today and would be very, very, very proud to tell you that. And I tell you that story to say, you can learn all the answers to all the questions you can have something to throw back at people for all their objections and you can have a nice little system of theology that puts all the pieces in the right place and it all fits together and you look very impressive and you can, you know, put up some sort of defense to people. I, I, I Landon Coleman, and all my rational arguments and philosophical arguments and theological arguments could not change his heart. Intellectually, we had a great discussion, but it did not change him at all. And I can tell you, and he would be proud to tell you, that he's not, has not, and is not going to crack the Bible and read it. Doesn't feel like he needs to do that. Um, didn't change his life. Here's another story. Kind of gets at what I'm talking about. Um, had another friend when I was um, a pastor in Kentucky, so this was a couple years later. And he was a member of our church. Everybody knew him, um, kind of a, a prominent member. Um, not a fringe person at all, you know, really a key person in your church. And he came to me one day out of the blue, and he just sort, sort of uh, unloaded a confession on me, like not of small stuff, not like I've been walking around bitter at this person and I just can't get over it, but like really big stuff that was going to have really big consequences for him and for his family and for his job and for our church, and it was a mess And the strangest thing is, is he's confessing it to me. Um, He's telling me about it, but he's not really sorry about it. He's not really, he's not saying like, I want to change. He's just telling me about it. And I try to talk to him and I try to explain to him, um, this is going to have a lot of consequences for you. You, you You know the road you're going down and this is where it leads and I'm trying to Rationalize with him and make him think and make him see and make him understand, and just like I'm talking to a wall, I mean, nothing. And this goes on not just for one conversation, but it goes on for several conversations. Several times we meet and we talk several weeks, uh, multiple weeks of of back and forth and texting and talking on the phone and going to have lunch. And I mean, just he's not denying anything. He's just not one bit sorry about it. And at some point, um, this was not my strategy I, to my shame, but at some point, I kind of pointed him to the Bible, and he cracked it open and read what the Bible had to say about his situation, and it broke him instantly. Instantly. There I was, talking, 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 nothing. Nothing. Five minutes in the Word of God. And he says, what have I done? What have I done? And it, and it broke him. Um, you can read a lot of books on preaching today. You get online and find the best-selling preaching books. And uh, the most downloaded preachers on iTunes and this and that. And what you're going to find is men or women who stand up and they talk about what they want to talk about and then they tag on a few Bible verses here and there and call that Bible preaching, right? They, they develop the talk and then they go to the Bible and they find some stuff that kind of backs them up and then they turn around and give it all to you at once and say, this is biblical preaching, And here's what you'll find with that kind of stuff. It's very entertaining, and it's very relevant sometimes. Uh, Those guys, they're great communicators, and they're very insightful, and they know the things that people deal with and struggle with, and they they talk about those things, so it kind of connects with people on a certain level. But at the end of the day, it's powerless. It's just a motivational pep talk from a guy tacking on a few Bible verses at the end. And I think a much better approach is to say, honestly, I don't have anything to tell you guys. I don't have anything to say that can help you or change your life. Not a blasted thing. My approach, and I think the, the only approach that makes any sense, is to say, the teacher's job, the preacher's job, is to make plain to you what the Bible says and to get out of the way and let the Bible do its work in your life. And if I can make it plain to you and clear to you where you understand it, I don't have to have funny stories and I don't have to have jokes that make you laugh and I don't have to have cool props up on the stage and all that kind of stuff. I just need to make the Bible plain to you and get the heck out of the way and let it do it, its work in your life. A few weeks ago, Jamie shared with us and um, he talked about Gideon ministry. And this is one of the reasons that I really like the Gideon's ministry is those guys, it's not really a complicated thing, right? Give us some money. We're going to buy some Bibles and we're going to give them to people who need them. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And some of those Bibles are going to get read. Some of them are going to get thrown away. Some of them are going to get stolen. Some of are going to get lost. But some of them are going to get cracked open and it's going to change somebody's life. And Jamie could tell you stories all day long. I could tell you stories from several pastor friends I have. One who, somebody gave him a Gideon Bible when he was in the military. Lost as lost could be. Gave him a Bible, read it once, and said, that Jesus, because it's a New Testament, that Jesus is the most arrogant, blankety-blank I've ever read about in my entire life. Read it again and said, I need to follow that guy. Didn't go to Bible studies, didn't go to, just read the Bible. That's all he did. Just read the New Testament. And I have another pastor friend. He was a college student. Did not grow up going to church. Wasn't a, wouldn't have called himself an atheist. Just sort of, I never really thought about it. Never really cared about it one way or the other. Don't have strong feelings for or against. It's just not even an issue in my life at all. And some guy, some Gideon came, gave him a little New Testament on his college campus. And he read it once and said, I believe it all. I'm in 100%. Where do I sign up? Where do I go? What do I do? And you listen to those stories, and they just sort of maybe get repetitive, but they get repetitive for a reason. God's word is powerful to change people's lives. And sometimes when we think about sharing the gospel with people, we make it so complicated it doesn't have to be that complicated. And so what I want to do in these verses, I just listed them out. You can write some stuff down or you can just read them as we go. There's not going to be super in-depth stuff. I just want you to see what the Bible says about itself. What do we believe about this book? And so we'll start in Psalm 19, and we're just going to look at a, a few passages here. Psalm 19. Starting in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. We're not talking about the Bible yet. We're talking about creation, things that you can look out there and see. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world in them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber like a strong man runs its course of joy. Its rising is from the end, uh, the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And the point in those first few verses, verse 1 to 6, is to say, look, everybody on this earth looks up and they see the sun going around. It comes up every day. It goes down. They, they know that. They experience it. They see it. They feel it. There's no denying it. And they look up at the stars and they see how magnificent it is. And looking at those things, there is no tribe, language, nation, place on earth who does not have evidence that somebody is out there. Somebody made all this. It's plain to them. It's clear to them. Verse three, no speech where this voice is not heard. So they can know some things. But what they know is that The sun comes up every day, and the universe is really big, and so somebody made that, and so somebody made it on purpose. Somebody designed it. That somebody is really big and powerful, and they're the creator. That's what they know. But then you you shift from general revelation to special revelation, and look what he says starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Look, I'm going to say this over and over as we look at these verses, okay, so get used to hearing it. If we really believed what verse 7 to 11 says about the Bible, I think when we're sharing the good news with people, we would do, myself included, I'm at the head of this list, we would do a lot less talking and a lot more pointing people to the truth of the Bible, if we really believe that it revives the soul. I don't do that. God's word does that. It revives the soul. It makes simple people wise. I can talk with an unbeliever all night long and answer every philosophical, theological, rational defense argument they want to go back and forth on. I can't, I can't make them wise. God's word can make them wise. It enlightens the eyes. I can't do that, but God's word can do that. It endures forever. My words, thankfully and most certainly, do not endure forever. God's word endures forever. It's more desirable than gold. We have something in our possession that we believe is better than a giant pile of gold bricks. Why would we not give it to people? Why would we settle for giving them so much of what we think and how we feel when we have something that valuable to give them. By them your servant is warned and he goes on to talk about hidden errors and faults and presumptive sins and what he's saying is God's word exposes all of those things. You can't convict anybody of their sin, but God's word and God's spirit working together can bring conviction. So There's Psalm 19. Look at Psalm 119. I know we just spent a month studying it. Psalm 119. But it's the longest chapter in the Bible. The whole thing is about the Bible. It's right in the middle of the Bible, essentially. And it starts off saying, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. If we want God's blessing... For the people that we're concerned about and we want to share the gospel with, we want God's blessing in their life, it's going to have to come through them walking in the law of the Lord. And if they don't know the law of the Lord, they're going to have to hear it. They're going to have to get it. They're going to have to read it. Look what he says in verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 27 Make me understand the way of your precepts. Look at verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Over and over in Psalm 119, the psalmist asked God to change his heart, to help him understand, to to help put the pieces together and make sense of it. And that's what we ought to be praying for people as we share the word with them. Turn their heart, incline their heart to your word. Give them understanding so that they can make sense of your law. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Your promise gives me life. If we believe that the promises of God can give life to people, we should do less talking and more giving them those promises all the way through Psalm 119. We could go all night long. Look at Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30. I think I just put verse 5 on your outline, but 5 and 6 kind of go together. It says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. That's serious stuff. God's word is true. Every word of it proves true. You don't have to worry about defending it. It is true, and it can defend itself. Every word of God proves true. And you don't need to add to it, because if you do, God will rebuke you, and you will be found a liar. That doesn't mean you can't explain it. That doesn't mean you can't talk about it. But it means you need to be very careful. I need to be very careful not to go one toenail past what God's Word says. We don't need to because every word of it proves true. You can use it. You can trust it. Look at Isaiah 55. You may have heard a Gideon quote this one from time to time. Isaiah 55, verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and they do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word goes out from his mouth, it will not return empty, it will accomplish his purpose, the thing that he has intended it to do. Just like the rain does what it's supposed to do, God's word will do what it's supposed to do. Now listen to me. That's not a blank check that everyone who hears is going to just instantly get saved. Because you remember in Isaiah 6, when God sent Isaiah out, he said, you're going to go out and you're going to speak for me. My words are going to go through you. And a lot of the people, most of the people, almost everyone who listens to you is not going to change. They're not going to believe. They're not going to listen. They're going to be hard-hearted. But it's not when, when you preach, it's not going to be a waste. It's not going to be a, a, a foolish thing. It's going to accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. And that's a promise in Isaiah 55. Again, if we have that kind of confidence in God's Word, sometimes we just need to get out of the way. Look at John, going to the New Testament, 17, 17. This is Jesus praying for the disciples right before they leave the upper room. They just celebrated the Passover. They're getting ready to go out to Gethsemane, and he's going to be arrested, but he's praying for his guys, and he's praying actually for us. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays the Son talking to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's wanting the Father to set these guys apart. He's wanting the Father to make these guys holy. And he says the only way that that can happen, you sanctify them, it has to be done in the truth. And your word, God's word, is truth. There is no sanctification. There is no setting apart. There is no becoming more like Christ apart from his word. So when you think about the people... Are in your life, they don't follow Jesus, you say, I really want them to follow Jesus. I want God to set them apart. I want Him to, to work in their life, to make them more holy, to make them more like Christ. The only way that's going to happen is through the Word of God. You can't move them there. You can't argue them there. I know the feeling where you just want to grab somebody by the spiritual shirt collar and drag them there, but you know it doesn't work that way. You can't do that. God's Word can do that. Look at Romans 10. Romans 10. Let's start in verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How are they going to call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they going to believe in Him and whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written this is from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. Remember, Isaiah says his word will not return void. Some will be hardened, some will believe, but it will accomplish God's purpose. They've not all believed. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing what? The word of Christ. You look at people who do not have faith in Jesus. You want them to have faith in Jesus. You want them to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And Paul says right here, well, they're going to have to hear. And they don't need to hear you. They need to hear the word of Christ. And until that happens, there won't be faith. They've got to hear God's word. That could be reading it. That could be you telling it to them. That could be them listening to it on an audio CD or a, a digital file or whatever. But they've got to hear the word of Christ. Look at 2 Timothy 3. Jump back up to verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood, Paul talking to Timothy, Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And those sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's like he took Psalm 19 and mashed it together with Romans 10. They're able to make you wise, faith in Jesus Christ, and he mashed them together and he says the sacred writings, they make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. We believe that the words in this book are not just Paul's words, Moses' words, David's words, uh, Peter's words, Mark's words, they're God's words. God breathed them out. They're his very breath. And they're profitable for what? Teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness. That the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. I think the greatest part of that verse, there's some great things that Paul says there, but the greatest part is at the end of verse 17 where he says, the scriptures are all you need to be equipped for every good work. You don't need anything else. You don't need to ask God to give you dreams and visions. You don't need to have some sort of crazy spiritual experience. You don't need to be moved to tears by how the song was played in the worship service. You don't need to see a great drama or skit that plays something out. There's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves, but they're not what you need to be equipped for every good work. What you need is the Scriptures. They're able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. They're the very breathed out words of God. Look at Hebrews 4. We're just going to the right here. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's living, it's active, it's sharp, it divides between spirit and joints and marrow, it discerns our thoughts and our intentions. If we believed that about God's Word, that it had the power to do those things, we're sharing with people, I think we would do less talking and more pointing them to the truth of Scripture. Trusting the Bible, the Word of God, to do what He wants it to do. One last verse, Second Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, start in verse 16, okay? Peter talking. Peter the apostle. Peter the guy who went with James and John up on the mountain of transfiguration and saw Jesus changed, right? Saw his glory revealed. Saw the most amazing miracles, including the glory of Jesus revealed to him. Verse 16, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. Verse 17: When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. You can't believe how amazing it was. We were there and Jesus was there and he looked just like us and then just like that. He's praying and he's changed. And we see his glory revealed. We see him for who he truly is. We saw what John would later see in the book of Revelation where John fell down on his face like he was dead when he saw Jesus in all his glory. We saw that. Not only did we see it, but we heard God himself speak from heaven and say, this is my son and I'm well pleased in him. It was amazing. It was the greatest. Verse 19. We have something more sure than that more certain than that, something more reliable and trustworthy, and you can put your confidence in it, what is it? It's the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. It's like he's read Psalm 119 or something. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We're not making this stuff up. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This book and the promises and the prophecies and the things that it talks about are more certain than standing on a mountain and seeing Jesus in all his glory and hearing God speak from heaven. I know that in my brain, in your brain, that doesn't make sense. And I know that you're really thinking exactly what I'm thinking. I don't know. If I could just see that miracle, that would really solidify things for me. And I wouldn't doubt anymore. And I wouldn't have questions anymore. And I would just be so easy to trust him. And Peter says, it's not that way. This is more Sure. This is more certain. This is not the words of men that they just invented, cleverly devised myths, stuff that we're making up. This is things that men wrote down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, if we believe that, I think we do less talking ourselves and more pointing people to the truth of Scripture. So, how do you actually do that? Just to be very practical, how do you use the Bible in evangelism? Let me give you a couple ideas. The first is you have to use the Bible intentionally. And what I mean is... Uh, you have to prepare. Use the Bible intentionally. You have to be intentional about it, and that means you 've got to be prepared it 's not just going to happen we 've talked about second Peter, excuse me, first Peter, three, fifteen. 1 Peter 3.15 if I wrote it up there wrong then that's a typo my mistake 1 Peter 3.15 says always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have do it with gentleness and respect you need to be prepared you're going to have to work it's not just going to happen automatically. This is not like The Matrix where they plug the thing into your back of your head, Matrix movies, and they download, okay, now you know how to do judo. Now you know how to fight with swords. Now you know how to do all this stuff, and it just happens. Some of you haven't seen The Matrix. You don't know what I'm talking about, but that's what they do. They just download stuff right into their brain. It's not like that. And some people say, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say that we didn't need to worry about what we were going to say in a moment of tribulation because the Holy Spirit was going to give us words? He did say that. He said that to a group of men who spent three years following him around and listening to what he said. If you haven't spent time following Jesus around and listening to what he says, you have no reason to expect that in a moment of crisis or opportunity that suddenly something's just going to pop into your head out of nowhere. It doesn't work that way. You have to be prepared. You have to be intentional. That means, let's break that down, preparation. It involves some degree of memorization. And everybody groans. And you all say, I can't do that. I'm not good at that. It's so hard. I've tried and i failed. And I say, really? Because I bet I could put on the speakers right now about 100 different songs that you haven't heard in years and you could just immediately start singing along. Easy. It would not be hard for you. And I bet some of you guys, if I started asking you car questions, like about car parts, you could just start telling me about all sorts of, I can't tell you anything about car parts, but you could tell me. And Jerry Darby's here. If I started asking Jerry Darby about like wood and woodworking tools and how to make joints and how to use screws and all this stuff, I don't know anything about that. But Jerry Darby, he wouldn't have to like, Jerry Darby wouldn't say, let me get my notes out about woodworking. Jerry Darby knows woodworking frontwards and backwards. He's just going to start rattling it off. Daryl's in the back row. Daryl's my sprinkler guy, best sprinkler guy in Texas. He comes over to my house. He looks at the stuff I mow over and knock over and my leaks and all my stuff. Daryl doesn't say, well, I don't know what to do with that. I'm going to have to get a man. Daryl just says, hey, you busted it. I can fix it. You take it off. You screw the thing off, glue it on. Easy. He knows it. There's stuff like that for every one of you. You know the things that are important to you, you know, and you memorize. And I know it's hard to memorize scripture, but the fact that we haven't and don't and think we're bad at it is really not a reflection of how difficult it is. It's a reflection of how important it is to us. You can do it. And I'm not saying you have to memorize the entire Bible front to back. I'm just saying, if you're going to be prepared to make a defense and you're going to use God's Word in that defense, you're going to turn God's Word loose on people, you're going to have to know it. It's going to be some degree of memorization. Okay. Secondly, preparation involves some degree of meditation. Meditation. Psalm 1, we've looked at it. We've studied it on Sunday morning. We've read it in here. Blessed is the man who doesn't do all of these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's thinking about it all the time. He's running it through his head. It's funny, I read a couple of illustrations of meditation this week. One guy said, meditating on Scripture, or actually said not meditating on Scripture, if you're not going to do that, it's kind of like eating without chewing. It's just going to make you sick. And another guy said, are you ready for this? He said, it's kind of like chewing without eating. It's not going to help you. It's kind of like you just put it in, you chew it, and you spit it out. You're not going to get any use from it. You open your Bible, you have your quiet time, whatever you want to call it. You read five verses, you close it, you don't ever think about it again. Well, that's just about as dumb as sitting down with a big ribeye steak and chewing it up and then spitting it out. Doesn't do you any good. Yeah, it tastes good for a minute, but it doesn't help you. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to think about it. You've got to digest it. You're going to have to meditate. That takes time. It takes intentionality. It means you don't spend all of your allotted time for a devotion or a quiet time reading, but you read a little bit, and then you stop and you think about it for a little while. Preparation involves a system of notes and references. This is just for guys like me who struggle with the first two. You try to do your best. You try to grow in those areas. But at the end of the day, you probably need a system of notes and references. Maybe you mark your Bible, you know. have certain things marked, certain passages, verses marked so that if you have an opportunity to share with somebody and you can't recall it perfectly or whatever, you can find it really quickly, really easily. Maybe it means you make yourself notes, you know, like a little index card or a little something that you just sort of have on you, you have on your in your purse or in your billfold or whatever, and if you need it, you can pull it out and use it. My goodness, use it if you need to use it. Notes and references. I can tell you one thing I do, because this helps me. I have about about three different Bibles I use, but they're all the exact same Bible. I don't buy different Bibles, and I don't mean just translations. I mean the exact same ones. So that, this is why I do it, When I look at 1 Peter 3.16, it's right here on my page, I know it's there. I may not be able to, on the spur of the moment, say, I know the exact address and word for word what 1 Peter 3.15 and 16 says. But I know it. I know the idea. You've got to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that you have. I've got that. And I know, this sounds silly, I know it's on the top left of the page. So I start flipping around and I know it's in the back and I say, there it is right there. Got it marked. Got it circled, got a note made out in the side. Doesn't matter which Bible I'm using, it's in the same place. And I've found that if I have three, four different Bibles, I'm constantly saying, wait a minute, that's not where I remember that being on the page. I thought it was over here. I have trouble finding things. So that may work for you. That You may think that's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. Like, that is so stupid. Are you kidding me? I don't care if you think it's stupid. You need to find some system of notes and references that you can use to recall Scripture, to find Scripture, so that you're able to share it with people. Okay? How do you use the Bible in evangelism? This is really high-level stuff. You ready? Ask someone to read it. You ever thought about that? Just ask them to read it. They've never read it. You could spend days and hours and months talking with them and arguing with them, or you could just say, Have you ever read the Gospel of John? You should read it. Read it and let's talk about it. I think you'd be interested in the story and what it says about Jesus. Ask somebody to read it. Um, it's not rocket science. Along with that, ask someone questions about what a passage means. So you don't just turn them loose on it, but you kind of follow up with them. What does it mean? And this is a little bit risky because this can devolve really fast into the pointless, dreaded cycle of what does it mean to you? Well, this is what it means to me. Well, that's what it means to Jimmy. Well, that's what it means to Don, and that's what it means to this guy. And That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you get in this, well, I feel like it means it. I'm saying you talk about what does it really mean. Not what you think or I think, but what does it actually really mean? And you, you approach it as there's a, a right meaning and a wrong meaning. And look, that may make you nervous. You may say, well, I get in an argument. What if they think it means something else and I don't know how to defend that and we can't agree and I look stupid and it just goes bad and it just goes haywire? What if they end up thinking crazy things about Jesus because I can't explain it and they think it means this and it doesn't? And look, as Protestants, we believe... In something called the perspicuity of Scripture. That means on the main things, the Bible is plain. The main things are plain things. And you can turn somebody loose on the Gospel of John, and look, if they want to be cute and be silly and make stuff up, they can do that. But when you read through the Gospel of John, it's pretty plain, it's pretty straightforward. And you're not going to sit down with somebody if they read it and they're being serious and they're going to come back with some cockamamie theories and ideas. They read it, this is what it says, that's what it means. It's obvious. We believe that. One last question. When should you not use the Bible in evangelism? That may seem like a strange question, but let me just give you two words of caution. Number one, do not use the Bible when you're arguing with a fool. Do not use the Bible when you're arguing with a fool. And I just want to read these verses, okay? Look at Proverbs 26. I think we actually talked about this last week. Proverbs 26. Verse 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you have to have wisdom to know the difference. But the point is, there is a time when you find yourself talking to a fool where you just need to stop talking. You need to stop arguing about the Bible. You need to just end it and walk away from it. And you be nice to the person. You don't have to be hateful about it. You don't have to slap them as you walk away or anything like that. You just need to stop. It's just You realize this is not going anywhere. There's no point in this. And maybe the light bulb goes off right when it, you realize, you know, immediately you realize this, is, this person's a fool and we're not getting anywhere. Maybe it's too late down the road, but when it goes off, it goes off and you just say, I'm not going to argue. We can talk about it. We can discuss it. I'm not going to argue because it's not going to be good for you or the other person. Proverbs says that. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 6. I had Matthew 7 quoted at me this week by somebody. It's not a church member, but a somebody does not go to church here. And they felt like I was being uh, on something a little judgmental. And they quoted this Matthew 7, 1. It's the most well-known verse in the United States of America. Studies show that. Scientifically true. Matthew 7, 1, the best-known verse in the whole Bible. Judge not that you not be judged. And that's great. Okay, You can read that. We can discuss what it means to be a judgmental person. But look what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't leave the speck in his eye. Help him get the speck out. Yes, your log needs to go away, but the speck needs to go too. Don't just leave it there. And then look what he says right after that, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We can debate verse 6 all night long. We're not going to do. I'm just going to point out one obvious thing. If you're going to do what Jesus says in verse 6, whatever you think it means, if you're going to do it, you are going to have to make a judgment about who is a dog and who is a pig. You have to make a judgment. You have to decide, who am I not supposed to give these things to? Make a judgment. And you say, well, he just told me not to do that. Well, maybe that means what he just told you to do isn't saying what you think it's saying. So you read it in context and you say, I'm still supposed to help the guy with the speck and I'm not supposed to give dogs and pigs, the things that are holy and valuable. So you're going to have to make some judgments in what you share with people, what you say to people. Look at one more verse, Luke 9. Luke 9. This is, uh, Jesus is sending out some of his guys on sort of a short-term mission trip, and he's going to bring them back and talk to them. Um. So some of the things that he says in here, I realize, are unique to the trip that they're going on. But some of the principles that he talks about apply to us as we go out on mission. He called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over demons to cure disease. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, don't take anything for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there depart. And wherever, wherever they do not receive you, leave that town and shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. My point is simply to say, even Jesus himself, when he sent his guys out, said, Look, if they're not going to receive you, don't waste time. Shake the dust off your feet and move on somewhere else. And there comes a point when you're talking with somebody. Not that you just say, You be damned, and I'm turning you over to hell, and you're never going to be saved and forget about it. But you just say, this is, not, this is not the time for us to talk about these things. This is not the way for us to talk about these things. And uh, So don't use the Bible when you just find yourself arguing with a fool. One last word of caution is this. Be careful when you use the Bible when engaging cults or people in other religions. And this is what I mean. Um, Sometimes you find yourself talking to someone who would be part of what we might term as a cult. uh, A cult Christian group. And you're going to find yourself talking about the same things they are talking about, and you're going to find yourself using the same words and phrases that they use. And you may end up saying, "Well, it sounds like we believe the same thing about all this stuff." I don't know what the big deal is. Why the, why we have to call them a cult? I just they're talking about Jesus, and I'm talking about Jesus, and they say Jesus saves, and I say Jesus saves. What's the big deal? The problem is they're they're using our vocabulary, but they have a different. Dictionary And they use different meanings with the same words that we, we use. Uh, sometimes you'll find yourselves with people like this, you get in sort of a spiral of different translations. And my translation says this, well mine says this, and it can be an arguing point. You need to avoid that kind of stuff. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, and sometimes, just to be honest with you, you don't need to talk so much about what the Bible says, but you need to talk about the Bible being your authority. And so sometimes you'll sit down with somebody who's of a completely different faith. And the real ground level issue, we'll talk about this later in our study, but the real issue you need to talk about is who who, and how are we going to decide what truth is and where it comes from. Are we going to look at this book? Are we going to look at that book? Are we going to trust this dream or that dream or this so-called sacred writing, where are we going to turn for truth? And before you settle that, if you're just quoting to each other out of your own book, you're just going to be firing missiles right past each other and nothing's going to hit home. It's just a complete, total waste of time. So you can be careful about that. One passage, this isn't on your outline, so you can jot it down if you want to, and we'll end with this. I just want you to look at Ephesians 6. And this is where we'll end Ephesians 6. I know you're familiar with this passage, and you know, you know about the armor of God and how all of this works. And We're going to read it in a minute. Before we read it, I just want you to jump down to the bottom of this paragraph, like down here in verse 19. Okay, Paul, he, he outlines who we're fighting against. He says, put on the armor. All this stuff. He asked them to pray for him. And then the real motivation behind all of it comes in. In verse 19. Are you ready? Pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak this whole section from verse 10 down to verse 20, the point is, in all of it, Okay, the point that Paul is driving home is, I want to be bold in sharing the gospel. That's the end game. I want to share my faith and I want to do it boldly and I don't want to be afraid and I want to be faithful in this. And then you back up and you say, okay, so we're going to need prayer, verse 18, 19, and we're going to need the armor of God, And as you read through this, you understand the only offensive weapon in this whole armor is the scriptures, right? The sword. Verse 17. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we've got to have the word. It's our only offensive weapon. And we understand who we're wrestling against. We talked about this the very first week, right? When we share the gospel with somebody, you're not just having an intellectual argument or a debate or sort of a who can prove who's smarter or who's dumber. You're entering into a spiritual battle for the soul of a person. We're wrestling against things we don't even see. And sometimes recognize. And so we're going to read it with all that in mind. And it's a good way to wrap up this idea of the power of God's word as we share the gospel. So Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, we want to be bold, and we want to be wise in how we share with people and how we talk with people about the truth, and we pray that you would give us the humility that we need to admit that our thoughts and our arguments and our ability to rationalize and debate ultimately are not able to change hearts and at the end of the day our hope is that your spirit would take your word and drive it home into people's hearts and their minds and their conscience and that you would awaken people to the truth through the power of your word give us faith to to trust that your word can accomplish your purpose And give us wisdom, again, give us wisdom to know how to use your word when we share the truth with other folks that you've put into our life. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.